Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well-lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge, but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. Martin, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here, and particularly at this important time when you're about to step down after five incredibly successful years as director of the V&A Museum. Let me start before we jump into the ethics questions with congratulations. Museum of the Year is difficult to come by, and so warmest congratulations for that to you thank and to you. your team. To start, what do you think the influences of the arts whether it's uh, visual arts, performing arts, or literature, on the ethics of a society in their time and for future generations? Mm -hmm. A museum, a collection, but also the creative art world is never the same. I mean, that's, that's banal. But one of the reasons why a museum is so exciting is because it's constantly changing with the society, the societies. A collection is not the same even if it's the same objects. If it depends how you use it um, for research, but also for political purpose. Um, and that's one of the reasons why quite often it's much better to use it, not for political purpose, because we know, especially in Europe, the 20th century, what it means if it's used by details. Or misused. Misused, yes. Um, the, so the major question is more like, how can you create this kind of, how to say that, this kind of balance in between education um, enlightening people at the same time to create a kind of impact that is just more than learning uh, or more than education, which means an impact on how you decide to live, what it means, how to, you understand the future, and so on. Um, having said that, it's not something that you switch on and off. Um, it's not something that you decide to do in a museum and you create this kind of, let's say, ethic impact on society it depends on the collection, it depends on the time, it depends on people and so on. Um, and you have to find the right methods to do it because just education is definitely not enough. It needs much more to be close to people, to reach people, to reach out to society. And are your curators expressing a point of view? Because I, I like the fact that you use the word decision and I see ethics as really how one makes decisions. Mm. The principles that are the basis for the decision um, the behavior that results from the decision. So are your curators coming at this challenge with a point of view that they wish to communicate or with a view to sort of neutrality, to presenting a collection with a degree of neutrality and leaving the interpretation to the viewer? I can give you a kind of official answer and a more personal and private answer. Please. Um, the official answer would be, um, I insist that my curators and keepers and in Germany had directors uh, keep this kind of more neutral position. Um, only if they are, if they are, the results of their research is based on, uh, let's say, on a kind of scientific background, or whatever you call it, then it's um, appropriate for a museum. Having said that, um, then you have to ask the question what is a neutral position? and. Um, and why do we use certain objects in a certain time? And why do we have a certain kind of uh, curators working on a certain object? And so on. So there's always a tendency. 
think my job as a Muslim director and the way I see my position and uh, read my job description is that I convince a curator to, to offer a certain opinion along with his research program or her research program. I want to see the real person behind the program. I want to see the opinion piece behind the object. Okay. Um, I mean, it's much more than just presenting Bohemian class. Right. Um, it's, there's a reason why we present it today. There's a reason why we see it like this, and so on and so on. The extent to which we do or do not integrate ethics into our decision-making is hugely influential in how we craft our own stories and how we influence the stories of others around us. And your tenure here has coincided um, with some terrible events in recent history, with the refugee crisis, um, from my point of view, the Brexit, uh, Zika, Ebola, etc. And one could argue that it would be that way with any museum director's tenure, certainly looking back at your country in certain eras, etc. Um, but what do you think the responsibility is of the artists? Um, do artists have an ethical responsibility uh, in terms of uh, using their work to insert themselves in the narrative of society, for example, some of these issues? Or is there uh, is their goal as an artist what I would sort of call pure artistic endeavor, mm. be it aesthetic or musical? Or... I think it's not only during the time he has been in London. I mean, honestly, the last 25 years, I think, whatever I did, wherever I've been, there was a catastrophe, something happened. Um, beginning of the 90s, when I used to work in Jordan, there was the horrible war in Yugoslavia. Mm. Um, I mean, from Yugoslavia, oh, and so on and so on. I think there's fascist movements already at that time, and so on. So there's, um, I think there's always, um, you have you have always to ask yourself the question in that position, what, to, to which extent you want to talk in public about it or not. Uh, but we can talk about that later, because I think there's a certain kind of position. If you ask me about the artist, I mean, I'm not an artist, then maybe I'm the wrong person to ask, because we should talk to a, someone who is really very deep in this kind of um, profession or passion. Um, for me, uh, without, but it's again a very personal opinion, for, for me, and I accept other opinions. For me, art uh, without, a, without an, uh, a direction, without a, a message, is really very difficult to understand. Art for the art's sake was never my thing, but it's, mm -hmm. it's really, it's, it's, I understand if somebody has a different position. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's just about the, um, Aesthetics, or if it's just about um, even if it's a profession to make money, I can accept it to a certain degree. Um, but for me, collecting art means we collect art with um, narrative, mm -hmm. with a certain impact in the past, um, um, or a significance or reference to history. Or if it's contemporary art, then I prefer to have an object that has a, a strong opinion and tells us something. So it's again how the viewer of the art is going to engage with it in the same way that you talked about how your curators are working with a point of view and engaging the public in, in how they're interacting with some of your exhibits here. Um, it's so the question is really difficult to answer. And I, I don't want to escape from your question. That's not okay. what I mean. But uh, I think real life is, is slightly different. Um, we have around, let's say, three million objects here. It's a little bit less. Extraordinary. Um, that means the narrative of that museum, or the narratives, because there are I mean, thousands, um, are in the end the composition of different art pieces. If we buy an object tomorrow, if we buy an object tomorrow, which is not a real message, I, I wouldn't be the person who comes and says, okay, to the curator, tell me exactly the message of that photography that you acquired yesterday. That's not, we don't do the message check, we don't do right. the opinion check. Uh, but I think it has to serve somehow to the overall message of the museum. And the overall message of this museum was Prince Albert's program, vision. So this is a museum for everyone. Mm -hmm. This is a museum for the education of everyone. This is a museum for practitioners. This is a museum where everybody can enjoy but learn a lot. And so on. So the object has to serve in a broader sense to that narrative, the original story. But it's not the one piece who comes always with I mean, sorry, it sounds a bit naive what right. I'm saying, no, no, no. but it's, it's just to explain clear. that um, the, the, the truth is definitely, let's say, we are, we are more 
it, it's more the, the message of the museum of the VNA in this case, the VNA in general, and not just the only object. Perhaps there's a, a strong opinion why an artist in a certain time made an object, a sculpture, painted something without this kind of um, strong opinion or the strong message. Because there was a political reason for it, and then it's part of the message again. So it's it's the context. The museum builds, and my job is to build the context for those art pieces and for research. In your five-year uh, term here, have you found that context has changed? Are you are you looking for context in London? Are you looking for context worldwide? I mean, the the, the advantage of the VNA is also the disadvantage at the same time. Um, we have. Um, it's just amazing. If you think about the situation right now, we have an exhibition on um, engineering, very successful exhibition on engineering and OVR, total design. We have an exhibition on revolutions, 1960s, 70s. We have an exhibition on uh, undressed underwear. And we have um, um, an amazing exhibition on uh, embroidery, Opus Anglicano. So the, the variety of that collection is and parallel. Um, that makes it extremely rich if you want to tell stories, if you want to create contexts. It makes it extremely difficult if you want to explain to somebody what the VNA is. Right. Um, I mean, that's always the most horrible thing if I'm sitting somewhere in a dinner and I meet someone, oh, tell me exactly what the Victorian album is in this. Or, um, we sometimes spend a few hours down there at the reception desk just to understand what people want and what people ask you. Always the most difficult question if somebody comes in. Most of the people come in, a lot of people, not most, a lot of people come in and ask, where's Harrods? That's easy to answer. Right. Um, the, but the most difficult question is, what is the VNA? What you, and then you turn it around and say, oh, why don't you start here at the beautiful medieval Renaissance collection? Or if you're interested in contemporary design, please go that direction. And then quite often they can come back after hours and say, oh, no, we, we couldn't find it, but we went to. And so it's something completely different. So when you come to the VNA, you have to be prepared that it's more like a treasure hunt or you're, you're somewhere lost in the jungle of objects. And that's, that's what a lot of people like. I mean, I think we, we are always more strategic in the way we build exhibitions. I think a lot of people come in and just want to have a kind of promenade. Well, many international visitors, I imagine, just want to come in and experience the VNA, this place of great international renown. But you do do a remarkable job of these very creative exhibits that bring people in the door and that do ask profoundly ethical questions about the role of engineering or the impact of engineering on society uh, or exactly what a revolution is, what were the 60s all about. Um, just to come back to the nuts and bolts or what I call the scaffolding of ethics, where do you look for your personal core, what I call guiding moral principles, um, your true north? Is it family, religion, uh, political leaders, the arts? Um, someone in here, one of our keepers said recently in a lecture about the directors of the VNA, the history of the directors of the VNA, that I added the social component to, um, to the museum, a society-based component to the museum. I really like to hear that. I was surprised that he said it. And I don't think that way, but I, I mean, if he or if they think that's, that was my addition to the VNA, that's what I gave to the VNA, then I really like it. Because, but it, it, was not a, it was not my program, it wasn't part of my vision. That's the way I am, that's the way I work. I can't imagine that a museum has not this kind of society based. I think American I read that context. you refer to the VNA as a double helix, that it had Prince Albert's founding goals of education and culture and that you're interweaving with that sort of openness and social change. Yeah, but Susan, wherever I would work or wherever I work, I mean, I was in charge as you know, of all the museums in Dresden. Mm -hmm. um, as a director general of the museums in Dresden, you can't ignore, let's say, provenance. In this case, and provenance means um, Jewish belongings, and Jewish belongings means the Holocaust, and the Holocaust means that we still have a lot of objects in Russia, and you know, probably Jewish belongings from Russia. Um, we don't know, but if I would ignore it, it's part of my job, and if I would make exhibitions ignoring that fact, I think everything would be wrong. It's shallow if we don't talk about it. And that's the same here, but I think here, I mean, sorry, it's a different story here, but I mean, there's always, there's always a history, there's always an, an original idea, there's always a kind of overarching 
theory or something like this. Maybe it's not theory, but more like, I don't like the word vision. I'm still with the former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt who said, if you have a vision, go to see the doctor. Um, the, 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 it's, it, there was a strategy in here, a, a brilliant strategy in the 19th century. There was the proletariat outside. There was Karl Marx and the Potters. There was uh, Engels uh, in Manchester. There was the Communist Manifesto published in, the, in 1854 in the museum. And the great exhibition was in 1851. So that's exactly that time. Mm -hmm. By the way, I think there are a lot of parallels today. Um, so. Um, the museum started with this idea to be here for everyone. That's definitely easier said than done. But uh, here for everyone means, for example, our beautiful restaurant. The first museum's restaurant ever in history, but it was done in a beautiful way so that workers, people, or ordinary people could come in having a decent lunch and see the exhibition. Which is really absolutely a revolution. In the it is revolutionary. Century. I'm struck by uh, a couple of things that you said in terms of relevance to today, one is access. Um, looking at Google and Google culture and all of these kinds of endeavors and the, the internet more generally, a lot of artistic um, ethical endeavors are focused on access. And you had that here at a very, very early time in history, obviously pre-internet, this idea of access to, for everyone. So that strikes me as incredibly important. But I have to say, I can't help but think of Brexit. And this idea that the 87% of the UK that lives outside of London uh, felt apparently not heard um, and not seen in a way that you know, this museum historically has said, we see all of you, this is for everyone, this isn't just for the elites. And it seems to me that uh, we could do a better job generally in society today of engaging more broadly I mean, let's come to the elites and, and the VNA first, and then we go to Brexit. Um, for me, it was uh, it took me a while to understand how the UK works. You can know everything in theory, but the Brexit system is something different. And my Brexit here was not Brexit. My practice here was that um, um, when I came to the VNA in the beginning, nobody said hello to me. Um, I walked in here, people on the other side, and um, stuff like that. It was difficult for me being a Southern German villager who says, even in New York on the street, hello to everyone, more or less. Well, that's not what I do, but you know what I mean. Um, and um, so, on the other side of the street was um, a coffee shop, Orsini, Salvatore Orsini, unfortunately passed away. Um, an extremely gentle man from Naples, always getting an espresso in the morning, so I had my Italian warm-hearted situation over there before I ran over the street, went into the DNA and people looked in the other direction. In the other direction. Um, it took me a while to understand. Do you, do you want to know the story? I think it's really, it says a lot about the DNA in general. Until I had, maybe two months later, I was really bored. Why? Why? Well, one would be. It's a very unusual situation for a new director not to have anyone say good morning. I mean, you know, I mean, if there was a creator, they probably said good morning, but all the other people see clearly on or, or gallery assistants. So um, I had friends from France here, and we, on a Sunday, I was up there in front of a glass case, showcase, and there was an object, and I didn't know what it was, and I asked the gallery assistant if it can help me because it was. And he came and made a perfect explanation of it, and I came back when my friends left and said, Great, you saved me. And somebody else, another gallery assistant, watched us, and I think she's from Poland. And she came closer to me or followed me, and that um, with way no wise said, can I talk to you? Am I allowed to talk to you? Am I supposed to talk to you? I said, sure, absolutely. She said, I just want to say thank you because you are the first director who said hello to us, but well, who speaks to us since 1996. That was, this, that was this kind of eye-opening. Unbelievable. <laughs> that was this kind of eye-opening. Mark Jones, my predecessor, said uh, when I asked him, he said, Mark, give me, give me kind of advice before you leave. Mm -hmm. It was more like choking him. So Mark won advice and he's, he said nothing and walked out and came back and said, mm, don't try to be British. And I think it was a brilliant advice to be honest, <laughs> because I think I could make a lot of changes um, which I wouldn't have done or would have even the capacity or the, maybe even the intellectual capacity that would be British because I'm then part of that system. And being outside the box, being outside that system, 
made it easier for me. I did not accompany Susan. I, yeah, I made probably a lot of mistakes, but I didn't even know that I made mistakes. Um, and that helped to make things faster, more efficient, more, more effective. That was my... And nobody had expectations that you were going to behave or... In a British way, or whatever, except the class system or so. Um, so I think in terms of ethics, that helped a lot in, in, in the end, just to ignore uh, rules and, um, and the class system and focusing more on ethics in general. Mm-hmm. And Which, that's what I did for the last In order for years. an institution to work ethically, there are no different classes of ethics. Definitely it's not. The same yeah, definitely. Exactly. Exactly. So. That's for, for, yeah, for all the human beings, and I mean, especially in a museum with this mm-hmm. history, but I mean, in general. Right. So that's one part of, of, of the answer. The other part is. Um, Brexit and what it means for people voted for. I don't want to say we and they, that's a bit difficult, but I mean, it's a, a decision made here, I have my own opinion. Um, I'm leaving. Um, if, if I wouldn't have decided months ago to leave, then I probably would decide yesterday after Theresa May's speech and, and she explained more or less that it's time for foreigners to leave. And that was tough. I mean, she said it in other words, but, but that, was more or less, that was more or less the message. Um, I haven't heard something like this for, I don't know, decades um, in, in all Central European, or all European uh, countries, this is really unusual. Um, the, it, I, let me come from two different directions. Um, there's one direction that says we are really in extremely difficult social situations. I think there are quite a lot of people in this country who don't have enough money to think about what their future means. So if you don't have the, the means and tools to create your f- future, so there's nothing to lose. I grew up, I come from a very modest family, you know, from modest, my father said once, don't say always from very. Um, <laughs> I come from a modest family background, but my parents always said, we want you to have a better life than we had. So there was um, hope. Yeah, but this is this after war, I mean, you know, like all the families in Europe, my parents, that's a tough time. And um, so it was this after war and everything has to be better and so on. I don't think there are so many people today who think that kids have to have a better future. If you come from a, let's say from a, I wouldn't call it proletarian, but I mean, I think there's a situation where it's really difficult for people just to survive and to imagine what future means. And if you don't know what your own future means, how do you think about your kids' future and how you want to elaborate on that and how don't you want to explain it? And I think it's in a certain part even obscene. Where one of our donors said the other day in here in this room said um, that, it's, that he thinks it's obscene that people here in that area in South Kensington, some of them earn in a, in a minute when other people don't earn in a lifetime. I mean, we always had rich and poor, but you can't call it rich and poor now. It's like those who have an affluent life and those who could hardly survive. And this is Europe. So I think, yes, there is a component of it. Yes, there is a kind of protest. Yes, people don't know what will be there in the future. But the strange thing is that a lot of people vote, and that's, that's like in the 1920s, a lot of people vote for reasons would, I don't know how to say that, I mean, it's either propaganda or wrong imagination or the media, I don't know. Why? I mean, we have no refugees in that country. No, that's right. So how can you be against refugees and you vote for Brexit because the refugees are a threat for you? See, no it seems that it was very much, um, we used the word context earlier, a situation of a combination of, as you say, no real hope, no ability to look forward because the present is so difficult, just making ends meet in the present is so difficult but also this vast uncertainty that the world context is providing. And then on top of that, the media trying to put into simple sound bites a very complex situation. And unfortunately, words like refugee or immigrant came out on top of the media communication and were misinterpreted and... And, um, and, there's, and there's a lot of lying and cheating and whatever, and propaganda in what we, what we experience in that, that, that okay. for, 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 for Brexit, like in the US right now and so on. So it's, I mean, I don't see the negative writing on the wall, but um, I think there's something going on right now in Europe, which is definitely bigger than Brexit. And Brexit is, 
and I think a lot of people don't understand my criticism here in the UK, in the UK. Again, it's a British decision and people have to live with it, but the knock-on effect on Europe, that's the most horrible thing for me, being European and um, growing up in, or coming from Germany. Because um, now fascist movements like AfD, AfD, I mean, they, they call themselves conservative, but I mean, it's a fascist movement. They use, the, use Brexit as a reference point. Marine Le Pen immediately tweeted, uh, this means Brexit and now we leave it and so on. Of course. So the, the, the UK is the center of democracy, the center of parliamentarism, the center of uh, a very balanced political system, a center of uh, civil society. If they decide that they will leave this kind of combining element European Union, Sure, there is a lot of criticism concerning Brussels and the government and everything. Sure, but I mean, leaving is it's right. like leaving if you isn't going to fix the dysfunctional and, European uh, system. Yeah, it's like if you get divorced just to have a better relationship to your husband in the end. I mean, it's ridiculous. So clearly, all of your work and the way you think about it personally is is sort of ethically infused. I'm wondering if you can say a few words about the key points you were trying to make in this outstanding op-ed piece you wrote for the Financial Times that was published on September 22nd. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier to you, I was in Los Angeles at the time it was published, and I woke up to a barrage of emails saying, Susan, you absolutely have to see this. And my reaction was, how fantastic. It's, it's high time that somebody stood up and made this link between cultural institutions and cultural leaders and what's going on in the broader world. So could you... Could you I mean, I said more or less three things. The first one was that, um, that I'm not really a fan of soft power any longer. I mean, I'm not sure if I was ever a fan of soft power. But you, 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 it's, if you have to explain what you're doing, if you travel the world and send exhibitions from around the world to, ease, to use the notion soft power, makes it easier for people to understand. Um, when I when I went to um, in 1990 to um, the former GDR, actually I worked even in the GDR after the wall came down before reunification. There was this year and a half in between. I made an exhibition in Dresden at that time. It was quite a unique experience. Very unique. What I learned at that time is that soft power is, is a nice decoration. It's the icing on the cake. But if the cake is rotten, the icing doesn't help. Um, I like that. I have to use that more. It's really true. So um, what I said in that, in that piece is um, I, I'm not trained as an ambassador. I'm not trained as... Um, as, um, as kind of conflict solver in a different, mm. difficult situation. What I also said is, I hope that there was never a war because of a museum, but maybe because of collections. But uh, I don't think that every museum stopped the war. Now, so again, we have this icing on the top of the cake, and sometimes the icing is important, but only if the cake works. Um, having said that, anyhow, I think it's important to explain, sometimes probably to your own society, what's going on and not always abroad. I mean, soft power means soft power abroad. Maybe sometimes, the, like now, it's, it's, word, it's right. getting into your own society and explain what's going on. There was one thing. The other thing what I said in that article is business and the creative industries and Brexit. I mean, we are, we are, we are, we are a company. We are, we are business. We were really business. And not only me, I mean, all the museums in, in London, but all over the country. We are, we are strong, really strong business, not business component. We are business. For the nation. So if they decide to execute Brexit, it will harm our business. Uh, now a lot of people would say, yeah, with, with the soft uh, pound situation, now a lot of people will come and travel to London. Mm -hmm. We will see. But um, we have an ambitious, very ambitious program at VNA, and I don't think we can continue to work like this. I mean, also receiving visa is suddenly more difficult, and so on. And we work, the VNA's collection is a, a, it's a global collection for a local community and it's a local collection for a global community. We have both. That's, that's the strength of the VNA. So if you don't work with people from China or Russia or the Middle East, that's what we did for 160 years. So why should I change why should because change? of the visa yeah. situation? And this idea of the bridge between the past and the future and this translation function um, reminds me of this word sustainability that is bantered about all over the place. Initially, it was used in sort of a climate change um, green uh, kind of context, but increasingly sustainability is being used more generally to think about intergenerational sustainability and resilience of societies. Yeah. And clearly this is an important element. 
You mentioned the word business. Uh, if we can focus in for a moment on what are your biggest challenges in running this very complex business, your biggest ethical challenges? When the sustainability thing is, for me, slightly difficult to understand, I'm, I have to be cautious, otherwise I give you give a kind of lecture right now. Mm -hmm. But um, I was in charge, one of five people being in charge of the Expo 2000 in Hanover in 2000. And the major topic was sustainability. Meaning um, environmental sustainability or more general society? It, it, it was more or less, it, it came out of the, it, it was somehow explaining the result of the Rio conference. Okay. So it was this sustainability in the environmental um, frame. Okay. Or with the environmental background, but in a broad sense, certainly was the most difficult job I ever had. Um, uh, at that time, nobody used the word sustainability. People were just laughing. I can really re remember very lively that I gave a lecture for the German um, Science and Research Associations. Like 400 people, they were sitting there laughing. <laughs> what does it mean? Sustainability? What a stupid thing. Today, oh yeah, today no, nobody will understand that. I remember that. Um, it was even in the media, we gave a kind of introduction to the, the, to the board of um, Allianz Security. Mm -hmm. And um, someone made a photo, secret photo of the, of the CEO of the company writing down on his legal bullshit. Um, and um, it was, we talked about 2000. And I mean, today, today there's no president, no CEO, no whatever who, who when, in a speech, you have to say sustainability Nobody would say in the first two minutes. Yeah. Right. So, but the original sense of sustainability, as far as I understand it, after all those years, is it comes from the, as you know, from the from forestry, from the forest industry, and that means you take only those trees out of the forest. Um, how to say that? Um, it, it means that you, if you take credit on the next generation, that means you take only those trees out, where immediately grow again. So you never ruin the forest, you never take too much out of the forest, so it's a lively environment, a continuous lively environment. If you, trans, if you use this topic for the, a business part, and the Vienna is a business, then you take only those elements out of the museum that you can replace immediately. If we put more emphasis on some questions, whatever it is, let's say ethical questions, then we have to add something else at the same time. It's a bit of a complicated explanation, but if it's if you just go in one direction, it will give an unbalanced situation within this year. So there's a lot happening in the world today, and as we said, historically there always seems to have been a lot happening in cultural institutions engaged with everything from Iran to Nazi Germany, uh, and then and looking backwards. But if you had to choose one or two ethical crises that society faces today, what would you put at the top of your list? Um, I think the crisis, the crisis everywhere helps now for those who are more in this um, extremist field, like Front National in, in right. France or, um, or AfD in Germany and Poland and Hungary and Wilders in the Netherlands and wherever we go right now, it's really scary to help them to deliver their propaganda. It's, but there's an interdependence, it works together, it's, it, because this is the fact here, it's what you what they, uh, how they use us or what they need. And I think we have to create a kind of cultural counter-attack. Propaganda yeah. today is significantly more dangerous with social media. Yeah. Because the, the way messages, uh, not just the, the sort of the volume of messages and the access, but also the fact that very complicated situations are reduced to tweets. Yeah. Or reduced to text messages or reduced to Facebook postings or one Instagram photo. Yeah, but I, mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think that there are two components. One component is exactly what you said, it's this um, who has, who owns, who owns the messages in, the, in the social media, who, who uses it the best. But I think we have a lot to offer also in the social media, but we don't really use it. So I joined a kind of group, like it's, 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 not an, it's, it's, an, it's an open network called Open Society. The Friends of the Open Society, it refers to Popper's the Open Society and its enemies, so we call it the Open Society and its friends, supporting the Open Society all over Europe, but starting in Germany and then So I think it needs more initiatives like this, using, using social, social media. media, but also, yeah, but also, I mean, 
three-dimensional real stuff. Um, this is what the museum is for. But it's not about the museum. We work with universities and I mean, football players and people across the society. That's one part of my hands. And the other part, um, we have one advantage. We are the, the keepers of the holy grail of memory. And um, I'm, I wasn't a fan of Joschka Fischer, who used to be the foreign secretary in Germany from the Green Party, who used to be the foreign secretary like 10 years ago. And I remember that he, in this, in the, and he we are exactly the same age, born in 1955. And I remember that he said in the Knesset in Jerusalem that he is not responsible for what happened in the Third Reich, but he's responsible for, or our generation is responsible to, to keep the memory, to spread the news, to talk about it, and to have um, a very lively um, memory. What would it be if, if, you, if you live in a dictatorship? Um, and I think that's our, that's our, at the same time, our opportunity, but also the challenge. We have the object, objects to explain what it means to live under dictatorship. And Susan, it's not a long time ago, I'm not that damned old. And I, and I traveled in Franco, Spain, I traveled in Salazar's uh, Portugal, I traveled in, uh, in um, Greece, where the junta was still um, in charge. I mean, I traveled exactly when the revolution started. Um, so what I mean is, it's just, um, as I said, I'm 61 and I remember very lively what it means to, to be in Salazar's Portugal and Portugal. And yeah, very long hair, people said, don't, 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 don't walk around with hair like this, they will arrest you. You know, just things like that, and just having it's long hair was enough to be arrested. It's interesting that you focus on this word. Yeah, exactly, but it's interesting that you focus on this word memory, because in many of the conversations that I'm having, some variation on the theme of memory is coming out. So, for example, Ian Levine, who is the global head of programs at Human Rights Watch, is talking about how easily we forget uh, what happened with Nazi Germany. Uh, I spoke with Paul Thompson at the Royal College of Arts, and he said, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, or that we had um, Jewish refugees floating around in boats in the Mediterranean. And so this, this notion of the importance of memory to how society behaves ethically or not today and is, a, is a very critical theme. Um, but that's obviously something that frustrates you really if you have a certain age and especially at this kind of job um, is this short memory span. Dresden looked like Aleppo 70 years ago. And now in Dresden people are applauding in front of burning houses where refugees used to live in or were supposed to live in. So and I wonder know, if what, the media what, isn't what, connected. What is, what is that? I just don't get it. This is something I'm really, I mean, the older I get, the more I'm, makes, it drives me mad. I really don't get it. What is it? Really, what is it? But I'm really wondering if it isn't something, I mean, you mentioned media. I'm wondering if it isn't that the media is also not terribly focused on memory, on connecting the dots, on reminding everybody what certain moments in history looked like. There's such intensive focus because of the media access today through technology on what's happening now and on bringing, you know, the CNN to 24-7, real-time what's happening. But I'm wondering if the media hasn't lost track of the importance of memory. And um, media, used by, media used by real people should have an impact, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I think if someone is educated enough to understand how media works, there must, there must be more. Mm -hmm. It's just, again, I, I just don't get it. Maybe it's just this morning that I noticed about that. But it's, mm -hmm. even in my family, we have come from this very solid southern German origin. But even there, there's a kind of war impact. So my parents met because of the war. Um, so, so wherever you go, the war was part of the, those components. We have all in our, in our family memories this horrible. I, think, I don't think there's, not, there's one family who has met that. If you think about the US, all the immigrants coming as poor as So how can we not be looking at today through that lens? Very, very It's part of the family's DNA. And it's part you, of the society's DNA. And then you turn it around and say, okay, because it's part of your DNA, you don't want to be bothered with it because you have a better life today. But then be so generous and offer it to somebody else. Or where are our Christian values? We all uh, educated, if you are Jewish or Muslim or Christian, in, in more or less the same values. Why don't we use it? Where is tolerance? Where is charity? Where is solidarity? 
Right, honestly, why is it? I can't even remember that I heard the word solidarity in the last few years. How should the arts influence or engage with science and technology today? Um, and perhaps more broadly with education. One of the things we're certainly seeing in the education world, even in the US, is that the arts are being relegated to second tier. People are focusing on technology. I've mentioned in other conversations that we have examples like a US senator who will say, well, if you enjoy French literature, that's wonderful, but you can get that degree without your government scholarship because it's not useful for finding employment. Um, so how do you think the arts should engage with science and technology and then uh, more generally uh, influence the education that we're offering today? Again, two answers, certainly. One is, um, I think we are engaged, we are part of it. There could, there could be always more. I think something that's uh, really important right now is um, to fight for art schools. Uh, a lot of people think art schools are again just the icing of the cake. Um, but um, who was it? Yeah. Uh, Eric Lepton. I always thought Eric is American and just learned how to play the guitar. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he's from Surrey, into the art school in Kingston. Some people, some mean people say they wanted to be artists and they were not bad artists, so they were sitting in the basement just playing guitar until they were really important and very well known. Uh, but I think well, that's what happens of... if you become clapped by sitting in the basement of an art school. Exactly. That's not so bad either. So, so then, then there's a reason to have an art school if they are the Beatles and the Stones and everybody started in the basement instead of making nice paintings or fashion or photography. So um, the VNA is only here because there was the Marlborough School in the 1830s, the School of Design. Uh, there was a public, in, uh, sorry, a governmental interest in educating the public um, and so on for business reasons and much, much more. Um, if you question intent, something like there has to be some, gosh, I don't think I ever said that in front of a camera. Maybe it's the British influence in my life. If you mean there has to be something in our education that doesn't have a kind of goal or target or direction or so, then I wonder if this is really true. Um, I think it, I like the way of being that things are applied. I think there's a kind of, of it needs a kind of purpose. My um, purpose, do you mean that it needs direction. to be measured with exam results? Or do you I, I'm not a fan of those measurement things. Okay. I just met someone in a conference in Edinburgh, Mike Power from LSE, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, professor at the LSE who, I mean, his background is accountant. Um, well, he's an no, he's not an accountant, but I mean, that's what he, what he lectures. And, and he was here the other day, just saying how you use numbers in a completely different way mm -hmm. to explain the content and not always numbers are just for, to, to control. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of number fetishism is crazy for our society, it doesn't help. And it's even more here than in other countries. There's a kind of overreaction that's, that's sometimes helpful sometimes not. I'm, what I mean is more, we need an applied way. It has to serve somehow okay. the society. And, um, and if the art world always has this kind of minority conflict, this kind of being, that, there's a tendency in the art world that we think we are just a minority, nobody is listening, we are not really important. There's this, always this kind of, oh, we are here, we are here, why don't, please listen to us. I think that's just the wrong way to do it. We are here, we are important. Um, but the way I explain it, I would say we have 30 million visitors of museums around London, and then we are getting back to numbers. Right. But there is a kind of rational in itself, but I think the, the hard work makes... But that's a demonstration more... of a social purpose. Yeah, no, we are here, we, we, we absolutely. And um, you said, if, if it's worth to be involved in the in the science and engineering, that's what you said in the beginning. That was well. How do the, how should the arts be interacting with science and, and technology? I mean, clearly you do that here on occasion through exhibits. Um, you also do it through social media and, and other and other things. But if we look at um, one of the underlying premises of this series of conversations that I'm having, that you so kindly agreed to participate in, it's really looking at the boundaries of humanity in a world where technology and yeah. science is saying, we can design our own babies, we have artificial intelligence and machines who are going to think for us, 
how do we uh, explore those boundaries of humanities and, and do the arts offer us a lens to do so or um, do the arts have a responsibility to do so? I think now I understand more what you mean. I think this is kind of, that's a, a different question. We had, um, it's not, long, not too long ago, maybe 10, 15 years, I was invited to a lot of think tanks from the technology world, world of technology, with artists. And I'm definitely not an artist, but you know, this kind of music. No, am I? This is this kind of, um, you, you're part of the art world. And it was always like, I always felt a bit like they invited a harlequin to a, to a party. Um, this is, there are 500 engineers around the table. They were yeah, great. And then we need an artist because we don't know exactly how to solve it. You know, this, and then there's an artist and he gives a kind of, yeah. That it's, it's, it's a kind of excuse, it's a kind of makes it nicer because we invited an important artist mm -hmm. and so that doesn't help. And the engineers go back to their lab or whatever and work on their topics and the artist goes back to this, go back to the studio. So it's that kind of interference yeah. doesn't help. What I mean is more this kind of self-understanding, the self-confidence of the art world and say, we are part of it, we're definitely part of it. Maybe the segmentation doesn't help. Innovation comes from inspiration. No, it doesn't. In innovation comes from math, chemistry, physics. I hate school. And anyhow, this is where it comes from. And uh, your imagination and your fantasy and your creativity. Creativity comes from something. It doesn't come out of the blue. It's not like the Holy Ghost comes over you while you are in here. The Holy Ghost of creativity. That's not working. Alexander McQueen was a very hard worker even if we spend a lot of time here in, in our archives, uh, our collection. But uh, that was not the only inspiration. He knew how to do things, that what everybody says that he was just a brilliant tailor. The technical side. And he was a brilliant tailor. And then the other thing was on top of it. So I, I like that example. It's, it's about the real world outside. That's a great example. That's also a great example of, of, of creativity and innovation that really resonated with the public. Uh, but that perhaps the public didn't necessarily focus so much on the technical side, the expertise in tailoring, the, the expertise in use of fabric and all of that. But that's a great But example. it needs overlaps. So it's, if, you know, if engineering is just engineering, it doesn't work. It needs this kind of creative engineering. It needs the designer and the engineer coming together. We had uh, Norman Foster and uh, Richard Rogers here the other day, together with engineers from ARA. They worked together for the last 40, 50 years mm -hmm. on Bobo and Paris and so on. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting how Richard said, Richard Archer said, um, it wasn't my idea, it was Arab's idea, they called me, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So it needs, in our needs society the, we have this, we, have, we, have, we like the artists and the other ones, are, they do this kind of, what you would say, what you would call in German, Schwarzbrot, dark bread, um, the ray bread, or whatever, it's, the other one with the fancy cakes. Um, I like this cake. Um, the, the, <laughs> It's, it's, it, it's need, yeah, it needs the interaction, it needs both. And I think there are a lot of um, parts in our society right now where uh, developments in our society where we need not this, kind of, not this kind of segmentation. Um, I was invited to Hong Kong a few years ago to, to experience both the, um, the government, or let's say the administration of Hong Kong and, uh, and the art scene. And uh, I remember that I talked to one of the high-ranking politicians, or they are not politicians, they are administrators. And uh, she said, um, she helped, she was really very, very nice, very sweet. We had lunch together and she said she hoped for Hong Kong that one day people will accept if the son comes home from school and says, I want to be an art, art historian, that the parents will like it. Um, and she said, that's probably, and then I didn't know what to say. And she said, I know it's the opposite in Europe. If you come home and say, I want to be an engineer, the parents will be disappointed. <laughs> So, I think the truth is somehow in the middle. And clearly, in order to solve some of this, the societal problems that are ethically founded that we've been discussing, we, we need interaction among systems. We and need you to can, Susan, you can solve an urbanistic problem. In with, silos. With, with, yeah, yeah, exactly. In silos, but also not with the people, with the person. You can solve an urbanistic problem with um, very smart artists making beautiful paintings or drawings. Um, he's probably... I love his, the candor. His studio is probably in this kind of environment in the city where there's a kind of social change or whatever, because he can't afford to live somewhere else. 
But that's not the solution to the problem. The engineer will bring the solution to the problem. No, I love the candor. And um, to wind up, is there something I haven't asked you that I should have? And if you're so inclined, um, a word or two about where you're headed now? I don't know nothing. And people ask me always, what kind of nothing are you doing? Um, no, I'm, um, I think I'm in a pretty privileged situation right now. Um, I had to, um, as I said before, I come from a modest family background and I had an amazing, I have an amazing career and uh, didn't expect that at all. So everything that happened in my life was always, what, me? You called me? Um, and I always enjoyed that. Maybe I work more than sometimes other people because I had this kind of, what, me? So I have the privilege, so I have to deliver something. Um, that's one part of it. Um, and um, I don't like to say that, but um, it's, I think it's, for me personally, it's really difficult to make just beautiful exhibitions in an aesthetic sense without um, facing this political situation, I think, right now. So um, to run a museum like that, it's like the VNA. Doesn't mean to sit here and make nice interviews and, and talk to you. It's as I said before, we have eight hundred people, we have around four hundred freelance. It's a, it's the, I'm the pilot of a huge, a, a huge uh, tanker, and I I'm not keen on doing. I mean, doing that for twenty five years, I think it's um, good for another generation coming in. I really mean it. Um, but I want to be politically more active, not as not like a lot of people think. I'm not running for secretaries. Secretary of Culture Post or Minister of Culture or whatever in Germany, definitely not. But more behind the scenes and that's what I started already. And um, I also use the fact, it sounds a bit arrogant, sorry to say that, but I'm pretty well known in Germany in Iran and after all those years. And um, just to say what I think is uh, I think important right now, not because I'm important, but because we need people to say that. We need people to express themselves. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been such a privilege. And we look forward to following all of your future ventures.